0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today, and we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Well, hello, everyone. We've got a special episode of This Week in Global Development for you. I'm actually here in Marrakesh in Morocco, where the World Bank and the IMF annual meetings are taking place here in the pretty hot desert uh, environment. And we've escaped the bustling conference center to, to hide away in a quiet conference room with a couple of experts to talk about an issue that I think is really important at this year's annual meetings. Um, Before we get into that, I just wanna mention that this week's podcast episode is sponsored by the Open Society Foundations, one of the largest private human rights funders. I think we all are familiar with OSF, and it gives grants to groups and individuals across 100 countries working to promote democratic principles, human rights, and justice. So we're here on the sidelines of uh, of this big event. In fact, we've got an event just coming up later today with Open Society Foundations on this very topic, the kind of politics of economic reform in the MENA region. We're gonna dive a little deeper into it today with two experts who who are sitting next to me here across this big conference table. I've got Niranjan Sarangi with me. He's the Senior Economics Affairs Officer in the Shared Economic Prosperity Cluster at UNESCO. That's a long UN acronym we'll hear a little bit more about later on, Niranjan. And Sarah Sadoun, who is a senior researcher working on poverty and inequality at Human Rights Watch. Great to be with you, Sarah and Niranjan.
1: Thank you. It's my
0: pleasure too. Yeah. And Sarah, nice to be with you as well.
1: Very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Okay. So this, the fact that we're in Morocco is probably pretty relevant to what we're talking about today. You know, we went through a period with Russia's invasion of Ukraine where we saw food prices spike all over the world. That matters everywhere, but usually people focus a lot on this region when it happens because there's just such a direct impact on people's ability to buy bread. You know, the prices, you can see them immediately spike in these economies. And there, of course, is a huge debt problem that's happening here in this region. And so when the interest rates have gone up in the West, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and that's driven up global interest rates. Again, all eyes start to look at this region because you think, what's it gonna mean here where things could potentially crack or break first? And not just crack and break for governments, but for people, for ordinary people. And so we wanna talk a little bit about what that means for them. Like here in Morocco, there is a 69% debt to GDP ratio. That's big, but there's it's even higher in its neighbors. In Tunisia it's 79%. In in Egypt, I guess it's 86 per or 88%. Um, so there's there's some significant challenges around debt. And when you think about debt and the macroeconomy, you think about the IMF, we're here for these meetings and What is the IMF thinking about? What are they doing? What are they talking about on these issues? What is the sort of practical way forward? So the two of you think a lot about this stuff every day. Um, And I'd love to get your kind of high level take on where we are right now. Maybe Sarah, we can just start with you. Why is it relevant to have a conversation about public debt, about social protection at these IMF and World Bank annual meetings, particularly for the MENA region?
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think when we think about debt, it's important to go behind the numbers um, uh, and behind debt-to-GDP ratio and look at and the risk of debt default and look at the impact on government spending and on people. Um, because uh, right now, um, and even before uh, the, the pandemic and the latest series of events, the amount that governments are spending on servicing debt, on debt interest payments, um, in many countries is higher than they're spending on health and education, which has... Um, not only impact on, on people um, and on their rights, but also on, um, uh, on the economy um, going, going forward. And the problem is that the way in which the IMF has been thinking about this is to actually cut government spending further um, in ways that makes it even harder for people to afford food, um, uh, healthcare, education. And so when we're thinking about this problem, it's, it's important to center the impact that it has Um, on people, and I I know we'll get into this a bit later, but I I think that the issue is that the IMF is continuing to pursue these policies that hurt people with the important difference that they are recognizing that, that recognizing that the um, situation is inflicting huge pain on people, and that they're coalescing around this idea of uh, improving social protection as the main buffer to protect people. But the problem is that the way in which they are approaching social protection Um, when we unpack that, is extremely, extremely narrow. And so they're satisfying themselves with the idea that they are protecting people from the impacts of not only the underlying crisis, but the ways in which they are exacerbating the crisis um, by saying, no problem, we have social spending floors, we're improving social protection. But when you unpack that, you realize that these these are absolutely failing people because of how narrow they are. Mm.
0: Well, Naranjan, I want to get you in the discussion, too. I mean, it seems to me like it's a simple math problem, isn't it? You know, the cost for interest payments on debt is going up. Interest rates are rising. Governments have to find that money somewhere. The IMF doesn't want to lend them money unless they know they can pay it back. So they say, hey, find places to cut. Um, Isn't this a simple problem and just, just an unfortunate circumstance? Or is there really some other way the IMF should look at this and some other way to get out of it?
1: no that's definitely the what you mentioned about the high interest rate is the uh, cause right now that's the recent cause, but also there is a historical context to it that's not the only cause. Uh, the question is whether it is the only cause that is affecting the countries in the minor region uh, to address the debt situation uh, of course, they have been facing high inflationary pressures and cutting inflation is important because a lot of people in the region uh, their consumption is about more than 90% of their incomes, the working class and the lower middle class.
0: Right, so when prices go up, I mean even a little Something bit, their 10% strained. rise
1: in prices will lead to uh, impact their savings and their consumption, which affects their uh, poverty situation. Plus also, I mean, with uh, uh, if, if we're thinking of cutting interest rate, uh, cutting inflation through in, interest rates, that also increases domestic borrowing costs. The region is also facing a growth crisis or, or uh, what we call it uh, over the last decade, it's about on an average 3%. If that is so and the cost of borrowing is high, so the growth and rate of interest, growth rate versus the rate of interest of the borrowing is widening and that means they are earning less but borrowing at a higher rate, so, so, so it's a simple math to see that if you are not earning as much as you can repay back, obviously the debt hangover goes up. So that's one of the historical context
0: as well. As so in a way, even if we weren't in this high interest rate environment that's leading to this acute, immediate pressure, this long-term crisis has been going on for a while and would have continued to go on just because the growth is too, is too low. And it's a huge political economy problem, both domestically and globally, right? Because domestically, you've got to weigh increasing taxes and the politics around that with cutting spending on social programs and the politics around that. And then globally, these countries have to negotiate with the IMF and with the international system. So Sarah, you were saying that it feels like the IMF has found what they think is a solution. They're presenting as a solution, but it's not really. Why is that the case? Why is the way they're defining social protection too narrow? How are they actually looking at it?
2: Um, first, before I answer that, I want to just pick up on a point you mentioned about the fact that in, in MENA countries in particular, um, there are, uh, the tax system is not, um, not progressive at all, right? There are very, very low income taxes um, and very low um, corporate taxes and very high tax evasion. And so we're coming into a situation Um, where governments are not raising revenues progressively. And that means that they're shifting the burden of recoveries onto people through both cutting spending, but also increasing regressive taxes like value added taxes. Um, uh, And then again, bringing in this issue of of, of social protection and and in in MENA countries, particularly since the Arab Spring, ironically, which was triggered itself by um, economic uh, frustrations, Um, there has been a shift away from the one measure that many MENA governments had relied on, which is subsidies. Now um, subsidies are not great, particularly fossil fuel subsidies, which are contributing to climate change and delaying the energy transition, but they did play a very important role in the social contract in MENA countries. So the idea was, okay, we take away um, subsidies and we replace it with with social protection, as we're seeing in, in, in Jordan and Egypt and other in other countries. But what do they mean when they say social protection? So social protection is a buffer, right? It's a way that people, um, it can be cash transfers, but it can be other forms of support for people throughout their life course, children, older people, people when you lose your job, uh, you get sick, et cetera. Um, it's also a human right. There's a human right to social, to social security. Um, the way in which the IMF um, and, and many governments have been approaching this is we give it to people who quote unquote, need it the most which sounds very intuitive, right? If somebody is is, is living in extreme poverty, they need it the most, we have limited funds, we'll give it to them. But what we know is um, that these types of programs fail people for many, many, many different reasons. They fail people because they don't actually um, reach the people they're intended to. There are extremely high error rates, but they also leave out a huge part of the population who are struggling. In Jordan, around a quarter of the population lives under the poverty line right now, um, which is itself set very low, which itself does not include the large refugee population. Um, And yet the cash transfer program, which was part of an IMF program, funded by the World Bank, uh, only reaches around one in five families living under the poverty line.
0: Is that a problem of delivery? In other words, just, you know, poor bureaucratic operations? Or is it more of like a political economy problem where people are saying, we're explicitly leaving out large groups of marginalized people?
2: It's, It's all of the above. So we have a a report um, that was published um, by Human Rights Watch by my colleague Amos Toe that looked at the algorithm that Jordan is using and showed how it relies on information that is discriminatory, inaccurate, um, et cetera. we spoke to many, many Jordanians who described applying to these programs and... Being excluded for them for um, what appears you know what appears to be very random reasons like they might own a car but the car is actually registered under somebody else's you know it, it's actually been used by somebody else or is inoperable and they are therefore suddenly excluded from from this program but it also leaves out um, people by design right because they are not considered quote unquote poor enough even though they might be not have enough money to uh, make sure their kids eat three nutritious meals a day um, so it's it's in all of the above problem. Um, I do want to point out that there have been governments in MENA that have been um, uh, experimenting with a universal approach to social protection, which is consistent with human rights, um, which essentially says that anybody that's facing um, uh, in a particular life situation, so children, older people, pensions, right, um, things like this, everybody qualifies for this. So we remove the risk of error rates. Um, And yes, that means that some people who um, might not, Need the money because they're wealthier. Get get the get the get these protections. But then we take it back through taxes, and that's the type of system that would really protect people. But that requires uh, universal social social security systems complemented by a progressive tax system.
0: I can imagine Nirajan, the economist, listening to this and maybe hearing Sarah and saying, "No, but this is progress. Like what what she's describing as a challenge." They might say, is the right direction? Like, I'm remembering, as you well know, Naranjan, being a, being a kid in India and my family standing in line at these, um, these ration stores, right, where you have a paper card and you can go in there and get subsidized food. And my family was middle class. I don't think they needed the subsidized food, but they and everybody else in their middle class neighborhood stood in line once a week and got it. It really shouldn't have been for them, but it was pretty standard. And so it sounds like, you know, going away from a subsidy focused approach like that, which can easily be cheated, is a way for the government to save money and therefore focus more resources on the people who really need it most. But Sarah's saying, well, that's not really happening. It's, it's turned into a, maybe a cost savings measure for the government, but it's they're actually leaving huge numbers of people behind. Is that how you see it too?
1: It's, it's uh, I would say that, yes, this is part of the problem, definitely. Uh, when we are looking at, we, I mean, at Esqua we have an initiative on social expenditure monitor. We're trying to map how the budgets are channeled to different social policy areas and also who are the beneficiaries. And that's where I will connect uh, to you how resources are allocated. I mean, does the government know how the resources are flowing to certain sectors or certain people who are in need? And, and that's where I think uh, the frameworks need to be improved, the tools need to be improved, how to channel uh, resources properly and identify the challenge, where is the challenge, and, and, and they can, they can uh, improve targeting. Um, we definitely see that the governments are doing some actions. Uh, for example, Jordan is one of the countries which has done significant reforms also in income taxes. Uh, however, the result is not there. Uh, the issue that uh, Jordan is facing now is uh, while, while the, they are not able to mobilize enough tax revenues uh, despite significant reforms, uh, they are also facing significant challenge on refinancing. The cost of borrowing is high. So the reforms that they have taken and the revenues that they generated is getting wiped out with the high interest cost of refinancing those. And Jordan being more than 90% of the debt to GDP country, the debt financing is significant, the debt servicing is significant, for and it constitutes more than 20% of its revenues. That means it's the resources that could have been channeled to more social spending, more health, education, or even those areas which build climate resilience, I mean, environment protection, but also generating jobs is one of the things that government needs to look at it more productively because the region is having a high unemployment rate for the youth. and Improving uh, uh, creativity through investing in uh, uh, sports, arts, culture, these are social policies which are not talked about generally. When you look at it, those spendings on environment protection, on um, gender equality, investing in gender equality, advancing gender equality, building climate resilience, the total spending is less than 2 percent of GDP. So, yes, there is a rebalance required in resource flow, they need to improve efficiency, that is key, plus they need to improve efficiency also in uh, uh, mobilizing resources, including in VAT. VAT is definitely regressive, it, but it's one of the major resource generating for most countries in the region, including in the US. But it's much more efficient than what we see in the, in, in the MENA countries. So, so the key is enlarge the pot of revenues through improving efficiency, and also optimize your expenditures through improving efficiency. That's one of the key. If you allow me, I will say that there is a greater role for the international community.
0: I I want to get to that, but I I just first want to imagine an IMF representative sitting with us because you're using the word investment a lot here, and we're thinking about where we should spend more money, and I think their mindset is the opposite. It's, hey, this is a moment for austerity. Uh, Look, these are governments that have these very unstable debt-to-GDP ratios. We need to cut Forget about investment, and yes, you know someone like Kristalina Georgieva knows very well how important these development and social protection issues are. I don't think the IMF is considering how do we just abandon the populations of these countries, but at the same time, we've got to shrink. We've got to shrink the public spending. Sarah, you know, are we are we thinking about this in a way that's just unrealistic? Because I can imagine the IMF perspective being. This is just not realistic. We have to focus on austerity right now.
2: I think what's unrealistic is continuing to pursue the same policies that have failed and believing that this time they will succeed. Um, because this, uh, the IMF has, this is the fourth program in the last decade that they have in Jordan, for example, and debt to GDP ratio is higher than when they started. And this is not uncommon. And um, this is something that the IMF itself has acknowledged that fiscal consolidations do not, on average, tend to decrease um, uh, debt to GDP ratios. Um, and so I think it's um, unrealistic to think.
0: And why is that, Sarah? Why, what, ex- just explain. What, what's the theory behind why a fiscal consolidation kind of cutting spending wouldn't actually improve? It should improve debt to GDP, you'd think.
2: Look, I'm not an economist, but I can tell you what I heard on, uh, speaking to people in Amman when we were doing the research for this report. And we were speaking to shopkeepers who were describing people simply having less money to spend and therefore spending less money. And then people who are even considered, quote unquote, middle class, which is in a context like Jordan, not the same as something like in the United States, um, having less money for them to spend on um, the kids' education. And then teachers having less money to spend. And so we see this domino effect um, that essentially takes money out of the economy and does not allow it um, not only to grow, because I don't want to focus on growth, but it's around the redistribution of resources, or the distribution of resources in, in a society. And that's why I want to propose a different way of looking at social protection. It's not something that's meant to keep people um, from uh, extreme poverty or even poverty. It actually goes to the distribution of resources in a society. It's not a poverty uh, lens we should be looking through, but an inequality lens. Um, and it plays such an important role in that. So. What we're trying to do, what governments do through um, universal social protection systems is it creates a social contract that all people see the benefit of their tax dollars. It creates um, a a sense of social solidarity that actually drives people to be willing to pay these taxes rather than somebody sitting there who is having trouble feeding their children saying, I didn't get um, this this money because I have some car that doesn't even work, Um, uh, whereas my neighbor. Um, did, which only fosters mistrust, uh, lack of political um, buy-in for these programs, which is exactly what we heard from people when we interviewed them in, in, in Jordan. I want to make one other point, which is that, again, this is happening um, uh, while governments are removing, or have removed, um, subsidy on electricity and fuel, which generates enormous savings. But where are those savings going? In Jordan, what we saw is that um, between 2012, when fuel subsidies were removed, and 2017, the amount of spending on social protection actually decreased, the amount of spending on health, education, and social protection as a percentage of GDP remained flat. And so we have these huge savings, but rather than investing them in ways that actually advance um, uh, people's uh, economic and social rights, um, they are leading to an erosion of people's economic and social rights, and then satisfying um, uh, ourselves with the fact that there's a new uh, cash transfer program that may be putting a little bit of money in a tiny fraction of the population's pockets.
0: Well, you said you said you don't want to focus on growth, and I understand, but in some ways this is a growth story, right? In part, what you're saying is, and Naranjan mentioned low, relatively low growth rates, and one way you get out of a debt crisis to grow your way out of it, and it sounds like what you're saying, what you heard from those shopkeepers is, if you don't actually get money in the hands of the average person, you're not gonna improve growth, you might actually hurt it. And so you're not gonna grow your way out. Of course, redistribution, rebalancing, to use Naranjan's word, is also a really critical element here, but it seems like both things should be in the IMF's target. Naranjan, is the IMF kind of not seeing this from your perspective, or is their view, look, it is so hard to get governments to do the right thing to be austere, to cut spending, we see a crisis coming down the road. We can't focus on these small, marginal issues. How they exactly design the algorithm on redistribution? We just need to push for austerity. Is that sort of the error that that they're making? How do you take? How do you consider this view?
1: That's a big question, and that's a very good question. And and it depends on it depends on institution's objective function, right? IMF looks at. Debt sustainability is its objective. So countries need to be fiscally sustainable. So if you if you start with that, what kind of mechanisms uh, help achieving that? The one of the mechanisms that helps achieving that is their debt sustainability analysis. What goes into debt sustainability analysis is they have mentioned thresholds, okay. The countries with this kind of thresholds can be considered achieving their sustainability. Now these mechanisms we are trying to improve, how these mechanisms can take into consideration different aspect than just the money. And and one of the thing is the countries like Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, I mean all these developing countries and also elsewhere, uh, the part is they have potential to grow, right, I mean, and, and how that potential can grow unless you provide injections of fiscal resources rather than taking it out, right? So if you invest, then only they will they will grow, but if you take it out, it is a leakage. So obviously, it will reduce growth. And that's what's happening. I fully agree with Sarah that the programs that IMF is mentioning, uh, is, is implementing, or uh, Jordan or Egypt countries are implementing, why they are not coming out of that is that those uh, investments need to help growing the economy rather than you put something, but you take out a lot of it. So the net effect is negative.
0: Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Advas Aldinger. I'm a senior reporter at Devex, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of Devex Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit Devex.com slash newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. I guess, Sarah, you mentioned the Arab Spring earlier. Did we learn any lessons from the Arab Spring? If the IMF says, look, we just have to do whatever it takes to achieve debt sustainability, that's our mandate, as Naranjan mentions. And if they push too hard, it sounds like what you're saying is, hey, we might be pushing these societies into a fractured state. Is that how you're looking at it? And are there lessons from the Arab Spring that we should be taking away? It's hard to
2: think about the Arab Spring and, and its lessons without particularly at this moment, you know, going to, to pretty, some pretty dark thoughts, right? I mean, clearly what the actual lesson should be um, if we are to get toward a region where people can live in, in, in dignity is that the extent to which people lose hope because of the economic situation that they live in um, requires a completely new approach, and the reason that I, I, um, I, I bring up the, the growth thing is because I, I think that when, uh, many times when economists think about growth, they look at it as like what you know the aggregate number. And Oxfam actually has an excellent report specifically on inequality in MENA that shows that the um, uh, accumulation of wealth at the very top has doubled in, in, in recent years. And so that can show up as growth, right? But the question becomes where is this growth coming from? And you can actually degrow the wealth at the very top, if you're growing the um, uh, wealth uh, uh, in the vast majority of the, of, of the population
0: is experiencing. That's such an important point, especially if you think about long-term growth as the objective because you could certainly have short-run growth that looks pretty good without looking under the hood at what's actually happening and it turns out it's all going to the Absolutely. top. And then Absolutely. is that wealth staying in the country? Is it being invested in the long-term growth of the country?
2: I mean, I think that the the major insight that the IMF actually understands very well is that distribution matters for macro um, stability. It also matters, as we know from the Arab Spring, for um, political and social stability. Um, And so I think that when we start, the reason that I, 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 I propose that we use a human rights framework is not only because, or not primarily because governments have actually signed on to these agreements and their legal obligations, it's because when we censor people and we center their rights, we actually get better economic outcomes, we get better social outcomes. Um, And what does that mean in practice? That means instead of looking at big aggregate numbers, we are actually looking at um, questions of, instead of even looking at poverty, which is itself an arbitrary line, we're looking at multidimensional poverty. We're looking at, um, do people have uh, good health care? Do they have good education? Uh, Do they have buffers against income insecurity? Um, uh, Do they have access to housing? I mean, these are the questions that economists, that the IMF should be asking? And we know that when we ensure that people have uh, their rights realized, that's when we get much better economic outcomes. We get better social outcomes, um, and so. The idea of, of just cutting spending and looking at this from it's some detached place in Washington uh, at Some numbers that we can kind of move things around and we'll cut here and we'll raise there And that's going to get us to a magic number that does not work
0: Right, so that simple math problem I mentioned at the beginning really isn't that simple and they're to add another element to it you brought up climate before and you know, Kristalina Gergiev has gotten a little bit into trouble for being a IMF leader who talks a lot about climate We interviewed a member of uh, the Republican House of Representatives who was critical of that focus, and there's people who say, look, the IMF should just do the math and forget about this sort of perspective. But if we are thinking about the long-term outcomes for countries and for their people, it's hard not to think about climate, especially in this region, one of the most water-stressed parts of the world. Where does climate fit into your thinking on this question of debt sustainability and social protection?
1: Absolutely, this is an important element most of the loans in the region uh, that have uh, been channeled to these sectors because the region is very water scarce. I think uh, 90% of the people in the region are living in water scarce. Um, 15 out of uh, 15 countries in the region are water scarce, defined as water scarce. So obviously uh, in Jordan also, for example, the water sector contributes to significantly large fiscal deficits. You can imagine the impact uh, on finance, uh, financing climate action. This uh, kind of, uh, uh, there is a lot of plays on climate finance, international climate finance flows, but the region receives most of it in terms of debt, again, than in terms of grant. So uh, These
0: countries are a little too rich, basically, right? I mean, they're not rich countries, but they're a little too rich from an income perspective to... To get a lot of grant aids, so then the challenge is: Do you just give them more debt? But there, we're already here to talk about exactly. how their debt levels are too high.
1: But but when it is climate, it's not just only there by by investing in climate or by spending on climate action. They are not only improving their uh, national priorities, achieving their national priorities, but they are also contributing the global goals. So that's why we are talking about why the climate finance flows have an inherent bias to debt rather than uh, it should be grant, which can support the global goal and that's where uh, uh, we we're thinking of wh- what are the mechanisms given these challenges as I mentioned that the domestic resources capacity is low, improving efficiency doesn't happen overnight, improving domestic resources doesn't happen overnight, countries do need finance uh, in terms of uh, debt finance uh, to uh, to uh, finance their uh, social spending in, in, for the day-to-day needs for providing food subsidies. Or, uh, in case of uh, Tunisia, for example, essential energy subsidies, you must be uh, it's all over the news how Tunisia is protesting against the IMF program uh, on this issue. Uh, but also, uh, they need uh, finance uh, to uh, spend on uh, climate action. If the debt service is too high and taking a large chunk of the revenues, then obviously they will not have resources to spend on climate action. And that that means they will keep on borrowing and that adds to the debt ro- rollover. That that's what is happening and then at, at, at SQA, we are uh, thinking of what are the opportunities to enhance f- this fiscal space that the countries can spend on climate and connected to SDGs so that, uh, the, that helps achieving their climate agenda, their nationally determined contributions and that also be growth generating. So we're always looking at... Right,
0: there's an opportunity in this, right, in a way, because like Sarah, we're talking about countries that are oil importers, and so they're burning dirty fossil fuels for energy, and yet these are countries that are blessed with a lot of sun. You would think if there were a financing mechanism that could let you invest in the long run, future of the countries, the green transition, they should be big beneficiaries of it.
2: I think about this all the time. It is. Absolutely criminal that you do not have so, more solar energy across the Middle East. 40% of Lebanon's debt comes from electricity subsidies, right? The idea that these countries are spending so much on um, a fossil, f- fossil fuel economy, when, and the only question is how much they should transfer of that cost onto the publics, who are, who are, people who are already struggling. Is a complete lack of imagination. And I think that the massive subsidy reform that swept has and is still sweeping the region, and the fact that it is delinked from an energy transition strategy is an inexplicable missed opportunity. I cannot, I look at IMF programs and I cannot understand why. Sometimes you'll get some you know language around the importance of, of removing subsidies from a climate perspective, but it's It's just a way of wrapping this very painful uh, measure um, in in some language that that sounds good because you don't actually see it linked to um, uh, investments in, um, in, in, in renewable energy. So it's
0: mostly just like one side of the equation, like we'll cut the subsidies for oil and gas, which of course hurts poor and middle class people who can hardly afford it but we we're, will we're not make the investments on the other side of the equation to reduce the cost of energy by investing, let's say, in solar. And, and when you think about Niranjan's earlier point about the unemployment, particularly youth unemployment in the region, the energy transition should also create an opportunity for new jobs.
2: Actually, interestingly, in Jordan, there was an effort when they removed, it was a program when they removed the um, uh, fuel subsidies to have um, uh, solar panels in low-income houses the houses of people in, um, uh, with low incomes. Um, and for some reason, it, it, it still exists, but it just hasn't really been very successful. But you take that as an example, like, why is that not incorporated into the IMF program? Why is that not getting uh, funding um, uh, in order to dramatically increase um, Jordan's solar capacity? I mean, there are other issues in Jordan um, around the uh, contract that it signed for gas with Israel um, that prevents it from, you know, that. Kind of locks it into um, uh, purchasing a certain amount of, of gas, but um, you know, even that, right? Like, if instead of just saying let's transfer uh, the the cost of this onto people and governments were s- taking seriously, actually reducing the long term um, uh, costs of relying on fossil fuels, we would be seeing seeing much better economic outcomes, but also, you know, uh, helping to uh, mitigate um, uh, climate change, which is impacting the region through, which is, a, as you mentioned, a very, a region that deals with a lot of water scarcity another and heat and extreme heat and other um, impacts from climate change.
0: Naranjan, you've got a debt swap initiative um, at the UN Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, the ESQA, as we've mentioned. Um, what is that exactly? And is it a solution here? Is it something that you want people here at the IMF and World Bank annual meetings to pay more attention to?
1: Thanks, Raj. But before I answer the question, I just want to put a caveat that, uh, yes, just energy transition is important for the region, but that's not the important priority. It's every country has defined their nationally determined contributions and, and uh, they are moving forward. There are also significant challenges in uh, putting solar, solar panels it's also an importing cost for many countries uh, but they are moving forward. there are technical challenges uh, Sarah, I would beg to defer that there it's it's uh, not that as simple. Can
0: you give a quick example there just so we understand like what, what's, where is there a it's not as simple as we think Where is there a challenge? It is
1: it, because uh, the technology the technology itself uh, is importing for them again so it requires hard currency to buy the solar solar panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one challenge second uh, the region has climate uh, issues which are specific the sandstorms and and the space and and the capacity of the solar panels the efficiency of it to uh, take into account uh, the most of the region for example when you use air conditions uh, how efficient are the solar panels for for that uh, for water heating so these challenges uh, still are not yet adequately addressed by the efficiency of the solar panels. On this issue of addressing the climate challenges and how the countries can move forward in renewables and more so how they can do more adaptation activities. So this is one of the focus of the region is adaptation. Water scarcity being the high concern of the countries uh, we started to see, as I was saying, how to enhance the fiscal space of the countries uh, so that they not only be able to invest uh, or not only be able to spend on social spending uh, of essential services, but also look at uh, focusing the spending on climate-related uh, actions, including adaptation and mitigation activities. In, in that context, we developed the um, debt swap uh, donor-nexus initiative. Just
0: explain, what is a debt swap? What, how does it actually work?
1: The OA we are debt swaps are of various nature. There are commercial debt swaps which involves all creditors, uh, multilateral, bilateral, as well as private creditors. Uh, the bilateral debt swap that we are focusing on focuses on uh, the Paris Club creditors and the uh, debtors in the country, who have a common objective of, uh, of achieving SDGs or they have a commitment to achieve the SDGs. Uh, sustainable development goals and also the climate uh, um, uh, Paris agreement basically so in that context the bilateral creditors uh, the the debtors are committed to pay back the external debt and and those debt services instead of paying back in hard currency which is a constraint for the debtor, if that can be converted to local investments so the the same amount of money or a part of it as agreed between the bilateral creditor and the debtor If that can be channeled to investments in the country, so that means the country can uh, invest in local currency, uh, 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 in climate-related activities. So the
0: rich country that's owed the money can say, look, instead of paying me, put the money in your local currency into climate-relevant investments, because that achieves a goal the rich country has too, which is to lower carbon emissions, slow the speed of climate change.
1: Yes. That's the, that's the crux of it. The, the challenge is which are the programs that the data country need to invest in, that's where we support how to design the program uh, which achieve the national priority and that can have buy-in from the creditor as well. So, so there should be a common agreement on the program itself and how uh, it is monitoring the selection, monitoring and evaluation of the program.
0: Right, because the creditor countries have to sell this to their own population yes. to say, look, we're, we're in a way spending money here by not taking the payments in hard currency. Uh, these programs were instead investing in are really effective. These are climate mitigation and adaptation programs that the world will benefit from. I think just as, as we wrap up here, Sarah, what would you want to see the IMF do differently, understand differently as they come to the table tables like the ones we're sitting around right now, um, and and present to MENA countries their plan, what would you want to see them kind of do or think differently in this moment in 2023 than they have in the many recent pasts when they've done similar sorts of plans and deals?
2: Look, we're at, at the annual meetings. And um, in my experience of these past few days, there is a very serious disconnect between the discussions that, for example, we're having right now or that civil society groups are having representing what people's concerns are and the conversations uh, at the official IMF uh, and World Bank meetings. So I think that as a first step, we need to bridge that divide. I think that the idea presented is is an extremely interesting one. The debt swap Um, idea. The debt swap idea. But I think it requires a sense that we need to think with fresh eyes about how to, um, how to proceed. And a very key piece of this that the IMF can do is to bring the public into these negotiations in a way that it is currently not doing. Who are they negotiating with? they were negotiating behind closed doors with finance ministries. And so very often, elite interests are those that are protected. But if they were actually publishing proposed policies and the impact on people while the, no- the loans are being negotiated, and the public can actually see what um, the various options on the table are and how they would be affected by it. They actually bring the public in as a stakeholder to these negotiations and enable public pressure to get better policy outcomes. That's a really interesting
0: idea because if you think about the situation the IMF finds itself in, for years it's been told, don't flex your muscle as some big global Western power in these countries. Countries get to decide and uh, you shouldn't bring all these conditions along the way. And so they're in the somewhat sensitive position of not wanting to use their leverage in any undue way and kind of interrupt the domestic political process. On the other hand, if they could be transparent, in a way, it doesn't interrupt, it doesn't add conditions, it just simply puts a little sunlight on what they're talking about, so.
2: I think the problem has been a false dichotomy between the IMF deciding or governments or finance ministries deciding. And what I'm proposing is a third option, which is public ownership of the outcomes. And in order to do that, they need to have have informed, meaningful engagement with public with the public that is assuming the, ro- the loan um, and if impacted by the loan. Um, so that it's it, which would have better outcomes for programs themselves. We're seeing in Pakistan, for example, huge protests because of electricity price hikes um, related to the IMF program there, um, and the. Uh, the managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, tweeted uh, to the people of Pakistan, uh, um, uh, ask your government to um, collect more money from the wealthy. Well, now she's saying that in a tweet. But what if during the negotiation of the program, there was a clear choice presented to the public, uh, to, to the people of Pakistan, that these are the options that your government needs to make a decision on? How would that have changed the political calculus and maybe gotten to a different outcome um, during loan negotiations rather than after everything is already um, uh, triggering public protests. Yeah, it's a, it's
0: a very tricky calculation for the IMF because to what degree do they want to be out there kind of in the domestic political environment in Pakistan? On the other hand, if they don't address it up front, you may end up with what you're seeing there and, and it's playing out in many other parts of the world. Now, yeah. on to just as we wrap up and thinking about what the IMF, kind of the mindset shift you want them to have. You put some pretty big ideas on the table. You said, look, think about growth and investment mindset, not just austerity. You've talked about rebalancing as an approach. You've talked about the idea of finding of creative ways to change uh, to change the picture, including debt swaps, and to think long-term about climate as, as both a threat but also an opportunity. So but the
1: growth driver also.
0: As a growth driver, right? the green transition, you can, you can use it to g- generate jobs. I mean, my guess is none of this is, is all new terrain to the IMF, what do you think is the mindset shift they need to have?
1: Absolutely, I, I think that's the key word perhaps, mindset change, uh, and I fully uh, agree with uh, what Sarah was saying, public disclosure of these negotiations not only at the national level, but also at the debt resolution discussions level also. I mean, these mindset changes are important. And I think IMF at the helm of several mechanisms where it can help uh, providing credible solutions. Disclosure is one thing, it's important, but going one step forward is what are the credible solutions that international community, IMF or Bretton Woods institutions I would say can provide. Uh, one of the thing is, uh, uh, um, the, IMF, uh, the debt resolution as we have uh, seen from the international financing architecture, it's not delivering, not efficient, significantly impacting countries. Those who are already impacted, the protracted discussions is impacting them further. So how that process can be more efficient, how it can give a voice to the debtors. For example, debtors do not have, a, they are slowly improving, but it has not yet reached that uh, so the Sustainable Debt Coalition where UNECA and, ECA and, and UNESCO as well as Egypt uh, Minister of Finance uh, advocated for uh, this uh, coming together, uh, developing countries, how they can get a voice in these debt resolutions, how it can help them enhancing their fiscal space while addressing debt. It's one, one way IMF can take into account their voices of concerns and, and, and not just fiscal sustainability but also social sustainability and, and, and economic sustainability to take into account this is one 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 thing two you mentioned about uh, uh, beginning uh, that uh, they are uh, definitely the multilaterals uh, are not giving a uh, giving a low rate of interest their uh, their cost of borrowing uh, i mean rate of lending is high so how can they improve their concessional lending. I mean, you know, uh, in 2010, for example, the concessional part of the loan was about 70% from the multilaterals from their own lending loan portfolio. Today, it's about 45%. So if that is the space, then where the multilaterals are going is to the market and the market is very high rate of interest. So obviously, uh, how to reduce the uh, rate of lending from the multilaterals, how to improve the part of concessional lending is another uh, uh, change required. And the most important is also in this context, structural uh, adjustment of the tools of debt sustainability analysis. For example, in the debt sustainability, the debt swap is not a tool at all discussed about it. You know, so, uh, and and, uh, instead of stabilizing debt in a package which can stabilize the economy, instead of that, we talk about how can Mauritania, for example, reduce the debt to GDP from 45 uh, percent to 35 percent. Is that essential, or can we stabilize? Can we make the right? That's the another therapy.
0: critical point you made in this conversation. Is just it, as part of that mindset shift. What is the goal? And a lot of it depends on the time frame we're thinking about here. Um, and if you're, you know, looking at this like a doctor trying to save a patient on the table right now, you you might do certain things. But we have the benefit of history. We can look back on how things have developed, and you know, you can see the connection between how average people, how, the, how their lives are shaped by decisions made at places like the annual meetings of the World Bank and IMF here in Marrakesh, and, and what it ultimately means for the direction of their country, their long-term growth, and then ultimately the ability to manage these debts. So it really is all connected. And I know this has been a very technical conversation in some ways, but in a lot of ways it translates right down to the lives of average people. And so um, I just want to thank uh, our my, my colleagues here for t- taking some time to have this discussion with us today. Sarah Sadoun, the Senior Researcher for Economic Justice and Human Rights at Human Rights Watch. Thanks so much, Sarah. Uh, Niranjan Sarangi, Senior Economic Affairs Officer in the Shared Economic Prosperity Cluster at UNIS, UNESCO. We heard of what UNESCO is. Uh, it's just been a great discussion. I want to thank the Open Society Foundation for sponsoring this special edition of this week in global development. I want to thank our producer Naomi Mihara and our project manager Blanca Circo and everybody who's been listening to this podcast and contributing to the conversation we have every day on Devex and on on all the social media platforms we're on. Thank you for for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.